It's very difficult to just sit by yourself or even sit with your team and make something that people actually want because like while you're working on your startup, the world is kind of chugging along and best practices are changing and competitors are being made. So unless you're consistently talking to people and getting rejected or getting new customers, you're not going to know how existing workflows work and you're not going to know, you know what's missing or what could be better and you're not going to know how to pitch it. Um, get customers as soon as possible, even if it takes 999 rejections, and then work with those customers to make something that people actually want. My name is Colin. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Layer CI. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how Colin Chartier created the best tool to create a new environment for each developer branch. All this and more on Code Story. Colin Chartier started making video games when he was young. He used to play Warcraft 3, which had a powerful map editor for its users. He recalls that one game map was called Goblet Exploration, where you were stuck in the middle of nowhere and you had to make civilization. He found that this was really good for learning how to make things that people wanted. He lives in Toronto and is a 20-minute bike ride from the waterfront. Many days, he will head down to the beach and work from there, and he enjoys getting outdoors when he doesn't have too many calls scheduled that day. In his prior startup, he found that he and his team were very sensitive to breaking changes, as it was critical to deliver information in a timely manner. So much so, that his customers would churn if anything broke in the critical chain. He created something to fill this gap at his prior venture, which he was offering up to friends and colleagues via open source. This is the creation story of Layer CI, now called webapp.io. Layer CI helps software developers review the work proposed by other software developers. Think about, you know, you're, you're making a site that uh, sells pizza to people. So you have your website, you know, you have a couple software developers, they're making changes to the website. And you want it so that if one developer proposes a change, the other developer makes sure that the change hasn't broken anything. So a developer, if they make a code change, might make it so that the buy pizza button doesn't work anymore, which would be a really big problem for your, for your pizza business. So Layer CI essentially gives developers an environment that has everything set up with this new change. And then the other developer can actually like try the product so they can try buying a pizza like a customer would and then make sure that everything has worked correctly. Prior to Layer CI, I was CTO at another startup in Toronto. That startup was doing uh, like web scraping as a service. So we'd help our users get data from websites. So say you want to find uh, which page of Amazon your listing is on, for example. You'd like every day to go through Amazon, find where your listing is from various uh, cities, say. And then for each city, say, uh, from a Toronto-based IP address, where are my shoes for the search you know, sneakers? And then we'd, we'd give these reports to our, our users. The reports were very you know, time-sensitive almost. Like if you didn't get your report on Monday, 
then you wouldn't be able to make your report for your boss. So you'd be very unhappy with us and you'd probably leave. Like you'd probably find another solution for doing this. So we were very sensitive to bugs making it to our users and for things breaking when a developer pushed maybe a substandard change. That led directly into Layer CI. At the time, I built something that was like Layer CI, but worse. That took a long time. And uh, I realized at the time that there was a, a gap in the market where people needed to be able to review changes with confidence, but there was no easy way of reviewing changes for uh, websites and uh, big applications because all of the existing tooling was for running, I guess, small, small checks. Well, tell me about the MVP. Tell me about that first product you built, how long it took you to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. I guess the, the path for Layer CI was maybe a little unconventional. The, uh, the MVP was really a tech demo because Layer CI, the product is kind of based on some novel tech that facilitates the whole thing. So the, I guess the idea is you can hibernate computers. If you have a laptop and you start your website on it, you can hibernate your laptop and then you can make uh, copies of the disk. So if you set up the database and the backend, and then you hibernated your laptop and you made 10 copies of it, you could use those copies for evaluating different changes. In one of the copies, you could download one developer's work. In another copy, you could download another developer's work, but you wouldn't have to rerun the setup process every time. So the, uh, the MVP was basically abusing the, uh, the hibernation feature to create multiple copies of everything. I was using you know, free servers and providing this to, to friends in open source. And the, the MVP was basically just, or I wouldn't even call it a product, but like the, the tech demo perhaps was just, uh, you push a change to GitHub, this environment is created automatically, and then it essentially just runs an existing CI workflow, but with this uh, tech underneath it. Uh, CI meaning continuous integration, like running uh, simple tests with no no improvement over the state of the art. We ran that for a month or two to make sure that the, the tech was solid and then added more and more features specifically for people building on websites. With your, your tech demo, right? I, I, I get I get calling it the tech demo, that that first product, right? With, with any sort of product, and maybe with that or even after, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs about you know, what you do in the short term, you know, whether it be feature cut or technical debt acceptance. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with them. Sure, there, there's lots of did-you hacks in the code base that trace back to that time. So instead of making a new code path for sharing something from something else, you might hard code a constant and say, you know, to do hack, uh, change this when there's uh, new providers. Initially, we only worked for GitHub, and I knew at the time that we'd add support for GitLab and Bitbucket, which we've you know, now added. But uh, at the time, there was lots of just repository type for colon GitHub hard-coded throughout the code base. And we didn't even have a logout button. So I guess the, the idea was, if you don't have any users or you don't have any customers, then it doesn't matter if they can log out or not. So we only had a login button, and then we only had an install flow. And then we, we focused entirely on the user visible portions of things. So uh, the landing page, the docs, the, uh, the install button, like the onboarding tutorial. And then once it was actually installed, there was a lot less maybe polish. But then once we got our first few customers, we could work with them to actually polish the, uh, the core product workflow uh, without needing to throw out things because it was validated by, uh, by user feedback. 
that makes sense. Did you have anybody ask about the logout button in the early days or was everybody just jazzed to get into the product? I mean, the, I guess the funny thing of selling to developers is they'll find some way to make it work. <laughs> so like uh, I do support calls with customers and then they'd clear cookies. Like they'd go to the uh, the developer console and then delete the storage for the page to log out, which you know, is not something a regular user would do. But since our, our users are developers, they, they generally figure things out and they understand why certain things are done. Okay, you're getting some traction, people are using the product. How did you progress it? And how did you build your roadmap? And, and in that, you know, how did you decide? What was the next most important thing to build? I mean, I guess the, the layer CI philosophy is maybe less structured than the most structured startups. Like, I think it really is a continuum of being purely idealistic and being purely roadmap focused. Because if you, if you set your roadmap in stone a year in advance, you're barely a startup anymore because you're not incorporating user feedback into the roadmap. And if you don't have a roadmap at all, then when you finish something, you're not sure the next thing to work on. So we had maybe a, a very, very short horizon in comparison to a lot of companies. We had uh, two weeks in advance what we're going to build. And then because we're working so closely with our users, we could keep building things that were immediately useful for our users. One of the growth hacks in the early days was if one of our like first few paying customers asked us for something, um, I'd build it, test it, and then ship it the same day they asked for it. During the same workday, I'd say, can you try it in production? And then while it was still top of mind, they'd, they'd be able to give feedback and we'd be able to iterate very quickly. Uh, maybe, maybe that's something that future founders should consider, whether, whether to have a very set roadmap or whether to be agile and take uh, user feedback immediately into to the loop. And that makes a ton of sense. How to balance between just enough of the North Star, just enough of a, this is what we're going to work on next, and still remain agile to change that roadmap with feedback from customers, market, or even, I wouldn't say from internal. Was it all market-based feedback that drove the roadmap, or did you come up with hypothesis on your own? The original pitch was just, it's what you're doing, but faster, which... Um, I mean, people didn't believe, like if you're a, a startup that's three months old and you're saying, you know, we'll do better than, than Microsoft, you know, Microsoft owns GitHub and you say, you're using GitHub's product, use ours instead, it's, it's faster. People just generally won't believe that pitch. So like uh, my co-founder and I talked a lot in the early days about how to position it and how to get our first few customers and what features they might need. And in, in particular, we talk a lot about what they didn't know they didn't know. So like uh, customers might not even know something's possible with your platform because they don't know the, uh, the internals. Uh, we added a feature to do manual QA. So to have a, an ephemeral environment, like a, a version of the app that a reviewer can actually click around in. And that wasn't something that anyone directly asked for. We had customers saying, you know, the hard part of this whole process is manual QA. And like, are you going to support uh, pushing to our cloud providers to do manual QA? But it was an internal decision to think like we can roll this into our existing product without too much trouble and actually provide this feature without needing customers to have any any new integrations. It would just work out of the box. So, you know, just that sort of thing. Like, what does the landing page say? What sort of personas are we selling to? And then what do those personas care about on the product side? And what do they want to see in the first onboarding stages? Because that, that's not really something any of your existing customers can tell you. Let's flip the team. Then, so how did you go about building your team, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I guess again, there's uh, there's a lot of hiring philosophies out there. We took one that 
came from my I guess personal experience again as CTO. I, I realized that after six months, hiring for experience only gave you very marginal benefits. Like for example, in if you're hiring a developer, you're using Go and React, like we are. If you look for resumes that contain the keywords Go and React, that'll actually be very weak signal for how valuable a developer will be over their uh, lifetime at the company. So if a developer stays with you for 10 years and it takes them two months to learn Go and React, then it's such a negligible part of the whole, you know, like the, the integral of value they provide that it's barely worth considering. So we, we really looked for past experience and just like base skills. So we, we looked for developers that had strong fundamentals. We looked for salespeople that had good conversational and uh, you know, like logical skills, like being able to piece together what a customer needs from disjoint conversations. Um, just very strong basics. We looked for essentially like first and second year undergrad computer science knowledge. So how do graphs work? How do operating systems work? How do uh, syscalls work? Like just the very fundamental concepts that if you don't know them and you don't know that you don't know them and you hit a roadblock, it'll be very difficult for you to solve a problem. So our, our interview was relatively easy in comparison to something like a Google interview, but it gave a lot of the same feedback because the people that could solve our interview convincingly were people that had really mastered the fundamentals and understood how computers worked. And if you understand how computers work, then it's easy enough to pick up a programming language and you know make changes. And we, we've really seen that with our, our developer hires. One of our hires made a Bitbucket integration within a month of joining. So they made an entire integration start to end. The other one made a feature, like a new directive for our configuration that was used by a quarter of our customers within a month of joining. But the, the only reason they could jump into this big code base and add those features was because they understood the, uh, the fundamentals. And also just because they're, they're very driven, motivated people. Let's flip to scalability. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or were you fighting this as you grew? I subscribe to the philosophy of innovation tokens. I think if you're starting something new, you have a few tokens you can spend on new technology that you've never used before. If you use everything new, then you kind of flounder around and fail because you, you don't understand the stack. You have to learn so much about the technology. We spent our innovation tokens on Go. So we used the Go programming language because it was boring. Go, Go has very few language features. So the long-term bet is that it'll be easy to onboard people onto it. And we used uh, Kubernetes. So uh, the developer laptops have Kubernetes on them, which is a little unusual for a startup, but it, uh, it really bakes scalability into the development experience. So if something runs in local development, it's almost guaranteed it'll work in production because the two environments are so similar. Uh, developers can just build features locally. And then uh, you know, when they run Layer CI in Layer CI for the final code review step, like there's essentially 0% chance that something that worked locally won't work at a code review in the environment that uh, looks more like production. So if you're using Kubernetes on the laptops from day one, was that sort of baked into the experience you were looking for in the team question? Um, no. I mean, again, like Kubernetes is just a tool. If you have mentorship, it's easy enough to pick up in your first month being onboarded. Yeah, you can just keep a, a checklist of which commands do what. And then even if you don't understand the very high level, like how DNS and scheduling work and all of these minutiae, uh, as long as you understand the fundamentals, again, like what is a pod, what is a container, then uh, you can you can generally go very far without being confused. And again, I guess we're a, we're a DevOps company, so we have guides on uh, containers versus VMs and how to do uh, horizontal pod auto-scaling and 
all of these are, are resources we've made for marketing purposes, but our developers can, can reference those if they need help. I really like that because people coming into your company, if, if you're not looking to, to say, hey, come into this, this startup with me and I also need you to be a Kubernetes master, right? You, you give people the opportunity to, you know, perhaps have a little experience, perhaps come in hungry, but then gain that experience with that new tool in a very unique way. Yeah, you're you're the first team I've heard having Kubernetes on the laptops. I, I see that as an incredible opportunity for anyone joining your team to just jump right in and be saturated into into another tool. So that, that's really cool. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I mean, the, the reason I, I got into startups in the first place was I wanted to build something that really helped people. So the, the thing I'm personally most proud of is the fact that our users are actually getting a lot of value. We, uh, we do testimonials, again, for marketing purposes. But in the prep for the testimonials, we, we ask people how they're using our tool. And a lot of the times it's, you know, people building things that are the, you know, they're, they're kind of building the society of the next 10 years. So they're building new ways to bank, new ways to get insurance, you know, new ways to do HR. And they are telling us that they can build these new ways of doing things much faster and without needing so many developers because their workflows are so simple. They can hire a developer, give them all the tools they need, and that developer can build the future. And that, that's very satisfying. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I mean, again, I guess the, the biggest mistake for the company so far was focusing on not selling to developers. Like in the, in the early days, we, we sold speed. So we said, you know, are you using a continuous integration tool? Do you want speed? We'll use our, our platform. And at the time, it wasn't very convincing. So uh, it was difficult to acquire customers with that pitch. And so we said, you know, let's build out this uh, staging functionality. We actually got into Y Combinator with the pitch, uh, get a dozen staging servers per developer, which maybe on, on hindsight is not a great customer pitch because what, is that, what does that actually provide? We, we really leaned into that. We, we thought because we got into Y Combinator with the pitch, it was something that, like it was the correct pitch. And then if you ever think to yourself, this is the correct pitch, uh, that, that's very dangerous because we, like, we took the staging servers developers pitch and we molded it into, oh, you have product people on your team. Those product people can review uh, a change for a specific JIRA ticket and then give the developer feedback. And then we spent like months trying to sell, or you, you, know, you have a designer on a team and you're implementing their design, uh, that designer can give you feedback. And we even went so far as to interview designers and, and product people. And of course, both said, oh yeah, we'd love to be more involved in what developers are doing. But then when we tried to sell this, we learned that developers, I guess developers bucket things into, will this get me promoted or is this just a chore? And if you're selling to other stakeholders, the developers will often bucket it into the chore. Let's see, like this won't get, those won't get me promoted. This won't make my life much easier. And so I will put this as a low priority item and it'll take you know a year for it to eventually get installed. I guess eventually we learned that developers mostly care about uh, their own experience uh, interacting with other developers. And that's really the, the big bottleneck in the first place. Like, it's very rare to even have a product person do a code review. The developers interacting with developers side of things was the most important for us. Of course, that's what's on our landing page now, but it was a, a dangerous hole to go into staging servers, product people, designers, 
product people and designers can still use the product, of course, but it's not the primary person that we're selling to. So what does the future look like for your product and for your team? I mean, the, the long-term goal is to be like Slack for uh, code reviews. So every team has a slightly different process for telling whether a change is good or not. You know, if you're working with a big bank, like if, if you're making enterprise software and you have a big bank as a customer, you might care about a compliance and security review and care about a code review, but you might not care so much about like product or design review because uh, design is less important for enterprise customers currently. Um, whereas if you're a startup making a B2C application, you might care a lot about getting the designers and product people involved, but you might not care about security or compliance. So in the long term, we want to build kind of a, a workflow builder similar to how like Slack apps work, where companies using our tool can specify you know, this is the template for evaluating a change. And then uh, we, we just give them all the tools to fill into that template. So it might say something like, you know, you're building your pizza restaurant. If you push a change and the change edits any web page, then a product person needs to give feedback on specifically the pages that change. Or, you know, if you make a change and the change edits an API, then another developer needs to review the API change to make sure that you're not breaking functionality with the, the mobile app. So if you can make these like rich workflows of when you push a change, here's specifically who needs to be looped in to review the change, then developers will have much more certainty about whether their you know, change is acceptable to show and then uh, whether it can be deployed. Because the, the faster you can deploy changes, the faster you can get feedback and the, the faster you can iterate. Let's switch to you, Colin. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, a CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. Well, my, my co-founder, Lynn, of course. I mean, in the, in the early days, I was really uh, heads down working on, I mean, the, the tech demo and then building features consistently. Um, but Lynn was willing to, to seek out a lot of rejection. I think she emailed a thousand people before we got our first customer. So she got rejected 999 times. Like, despite having worked at a startup before, I'd never seen just how like grueling that was. People don't reject you nicely, right? They say like, stop spamming me, or someone signs up to something and you email them six months later saying like, hey, you know, following up and then say like, how'd you get my email? And then you, you know, like you have to, you have to remind them that they interacted with you and your launch three months ago. Just like people are generally very negative to, to builders, like they don't they don't see the future like you do, and uh, I guess a, a large part of the experience of uh, Layer CI has been just like seeing that no turn into a yes more and more, but you you have to get the no in the first place to to get there. We talked about mistakes, right? We talked about a mistake you made earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently, or where would you consider taking a different approach? I mean, I, I definitely would have focused more on design early on. I mean, I, I had a friend that was a designer that I, I didn't loop in fast enough because in the early days it was like, oh, you know, we, we can just make something that's fast. And then developers barely see the interface at all. Like, you know, they push, they just want to see the check mark in GitHub. So it doesn't matter to them what our interface looks like. I guess that, that turned out to be wrong because like soon after we added like a nice interface, like something that was pleasant to look at. And we added uh, nice docs. 
So ones that had been user tested to be readable. Uh, we started doing significantly better with conversion. So uh, if I could go back to the beginning, I would make something that's pretty before it's launched. And I think that's, that's something that's maybe obvious to a lot of founders these days, but um, even for super technical tools, people associate the design of your product with trust. If your product has a bunch of square edges and a huge amount of text, just like very close, it'll look very unprofessional and uh, discerning customers will think that your, your company is very small and not legitimate, which is true, of course, but you don't want them thinking that. So last question, Colin, you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I mean, I do get people reaching out on LinkedIn and asking, you know, like I'm building a, something for students. And my, my advice is usually like, don't, don't talk to me, talk to people that have done this specifically before, because the experience is so different for every industry and like every sub industry. But uh, for, for people working uh, business to business that are making something that uh, people would pay for that, you know, improves the lives of people working in, in companies, the immediate advice I tell everyone that asks is um, get customers as soon as possible even if it takes 999 rejections, and then work with those customers to make something that people actually want. It's very difficult to just sit by yourself or even sit with your team and make something that people actually want because like, while you're working on your startup, the world is kind of chugging along and best practices are changing and competitors are being made. So unless you're consistently talking to people and getting rejected or getting new customers, you're not gonna know how existing workflows work and you're not gonna know you know, what's missing or what could be better, and you're not gonna know how to pitch it. So uh, for people making business to business apps, I think it's super important you get customers, in particular paying customers, as soon as possible. And I, I say paying customers because those are the ones that are actually willing to put skin in the game. Like they'll, uh, if they're paying you, then they'll expect certain things and they, they won't be afraid to ask for them. Whereas if you have free users, then they'll kind of think you're doing them a favor by giving it to them for free. So they won't want to complain or threaten to leave. Once you have customers, you can obviously work very closely with them. So I think the, uh, the algorithm that worked very well for us is just uh, get a paying customer as soon as possible. We got it two months after launching. With those customers, uh, iterate very quickly. So ask them what they want and then build it the same day. <laughs> and then repeat that a few times until you have uh, a product that actually has some concrete value propositions. And then find people like your customer. So find the persona that cares about the value propositions you've built. And then uh, tune your product and your messaging towards that persona. And then get eyeballs and <laughs> get eyeballs from that group of people to you. And oftentimes that's you know uh, doing launches every month, uh, going to industry events, just going wherever your customers are and then talking to them. That's great advice. Well, Colin, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Layer CI. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.